I uh, can't find Danny. Is that why you're here? Looking for Danny? Yeah, well, you don't have to explain anything to me. I do, because you're acting like I didn't love you. Evelyn, loving you kept me alive. Two pilots fall in love with the same woman as America is drawn into the Second World War. This week, we talk about Rob Schneider's career, dialogue that would be at home on a Hallmark card, and what Michael Bay is like in a pitch meeting. Then we find out if Pearl Harbor, the movie, not the place or the attack, stands the test of time. James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, and you there on my video screen, you handsome devil, you're James Brief, aren't you? Uh, Yes, that'd be me. Insert modesty joke here. But uh, how are you doing, (laughs) Al? I am doing okay, I would say. How about you? I actually have to say that, uh, you know, at the time we're recording this in spring of 2021, like New York is waking up. Everything's starting to get nice and warm, and because of the pandemic, there is, like, endless outdoor sidewalk eating. And, you know, now that uh, I'm vaccinated, I- I've gone out to restaurants, and uh, you can really see that things are picking up, and uh, you're happy to see this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you done indoor dining yet, or still only outdoor? I did, and the indoor place, we happen to have, like, kind of a secluded table, you know, CDC guidelines, you know, you can go into a restaurant if you're fully vaccinated and, uh, you know, shouldn't be an issue as long as the restaurant is following the CDC guidelines themselves. You know, it's funny, Courtney and I went out two weeks to the day after we were vaccinated and we went to this restaurant that they had indoor seating and it was totally empty. I mean, like you would have been way more than six feet apart. But they also had this beautiful outdoor space and it was this beautiful night. And it was like, well, we could eat inside, but that seems like a missed opportunity. You know, pandemic or not, eating outside like on a nice night, I feel like that's always better. You know, I happened to eat one time in an indoor restaurant. Yeah, our, our table was secluded. But I'm same as you. Like, I will pick an outdoor restaurant on a nice night. Go for it. Hello. You know, outdoor seating in Manhattan. It's very nice. Yeah. And I hope a lot of the restaurants that have like created these outdoor spaces now because of the pandemic, keep them like if they're able to. I mean, obviously, some places won't be able to, but uh, it's a nice thing. But you know what's less nice than eating outside is watching a movie directed by Michael Bay. I object. I object. Uh, oh, I, do you? Yes, of course I do. I mean, look at the guy's uh, film history. He was a music video director. And mm-hmm. yeah, he, he directed a bunch of famous videos. Such as? Uh, such as um, Meatloaf, I Would Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That. Mm. He did um, a Play That Funky Music by Vanilla Ice. Oh, yes, the classic. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Right, right. He worked with Tina Turner, Lionel Richie, uh, Wilson Phillips. He got his shot at doing like an action film. And, you know, we've talked about this film already, Bad Boys. And he hit it out of the park in terms of making money. Bad Boys actually did okay. And then The Rock came, which we reviewed. And I really liked The Rock. I thought Bad Boys was fun. And then Armageddon, I actually stood by Armageddon and said that it stood up. Even though I said no to Bad Boys staying the test of time, I still liked it, and I certainly think he got better with The Rock, and you know, I, I do like The Rock more than Armageddon. I mean, I have said no to all of the Michael Bay movies we've done on the podcast in terms of do they stand the test of time? Bad Boys, Bad Boys 2, The Rock, Armageddon, none of those movies stand the test of time. What will I say about Pearl Harbor? Well, you'll just have to keep listening to this episode to find out. 
Uh, but we're talking about the movie because it's the 20th anniversary. I saw this movie in the theater. You said that you had never seen it, right? That's correct. I'd never seen this film until uh, I just watched it now. And you said you watched it with your girlfriend and she liked it. Is that right? Yeah, she had seen it like years ago and she remembered really liking it. Gotcha. Okay. She also had a crush on the two male leads, a big time crush. Uh, Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett, a.k.a. Josh Hotnet. Uh, You know, this isn't really a story, just a thing, but I've talked about being a page at Saturday Night Live. The very first episode that I was a page at SNL, Josh Hartnett was the host. He is a good-looking guy in person, or he he was in 2001. I was probably a lot better looking then, too. Um, But uh, he was also very friendly, very nice, uh, chill guy. Al, you are still so hot. Why, thank you. I mean, obviously I know that, but it's weird if I say it. But thank you for saying it. I appreciate the compliment. Um, So the movie is obviously centered around the attack on Pearl Harbor, and it centers on boyhood friends Rafe McCauley, played by Ben Affleck, and Danny Walker, who's played by Josh Hartnett. Rafe and Danny are pilots in the early days of World War II. Rafe falls in love with a nurse named Evelyn, played by Kate Beckinsale, but is then sent to fly with the British, where he is presumed killed in action. Rafe and Evelyn, who are stationed in Pearl Harbor, are heartbroken about Danny's death, but they soon start dating, which makes things super awkward when Danny shows up very much alive. Awkward. Yeah, but their love triangle isn't their biggest problem because the next morning the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. Danny and Rafe are then sent on a dangerous retaliatory strike where their chances of survival are slim. And I did just want to point out one quick thing. Kate Beckinsale plays the female lead in this movie. Last week when we mentioned the movie, you said that you knew it starred Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett and Liv Tyler and Cuba Gooding Jr. And I didn't correct you. And you know how much I love correcting you. But I didn't correct you because I thought it was Liv Tyler. Uh, I guess I had just mixed it up with Armageddon, I guess, like the other Ben Affleck, Michael Bay movie. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I had never seen the film. Maybe she's on the poster in a small amount. The only thing I remember about the poster was it was uh, Ben Affleck and maybe Josh Hartnett in very, like, World War II, like, soldier. Like, you know, these are greatest generation boys. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they, they definitely played into the look. So I feel like this was a pretty big hit when it came out, right? It was a big summer blockbuster, uh, tentpole kind of film. This is the kind of film that you would see, like, a 20-foot cardboard display in the hallway of the movie theater, like, coming, a summer 2001, Pearl Harbor. This was majorly hyped as, like, this is this year's uh, Armageddon or Independence Day. Back then, there was always, like, one big one. And at a $140 million budget... And it opened at number one with $59 million, knocking Shrek off the top spot. And it was actually number one for two weekends in a row. The second week it was out, uh, the first week in June that year, it managed to fend off the debut of Rob Schneider is the animal. Oh my God, that was a real thing. (laughs) I completely forgot that that movie existed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like Rob Schneider was the hot chick, and Rob Schneider is the animal. Rob Schneider, good for you. Are they paying, like, $3 million for each of these films? Uh, Cash the check and say the lines. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, unless he's going for high art. But if you're not, cash that check and do Deuce Bigelow male gigolo. You know, every one of his films was Rob Schneider is some schmo who's accidentally... What is the opposite of a schmo? A hot chick, uh, an animal, or a gigolo? (laughs) I guess. um, I mean, listen, he cashed in on what he had, and good for him, I guess. But, you know, it actually wound up only grossing $200 million domestically. 
And you know, opening at uh, with sixty million dollars, really, it was kind of like a three and a half ish uh, multiplier. It did gross four hundred fifty million dollars worldwide. So, you know, a movie like this, it's really hard to know the exact budget. It's been reported at one hundred forty million dollars, but if that's the production budget, not at all the uh, the marketing, like someone paid for that uh, huge cardboard thing that I saw in probably the Kips Bay Theater. And I remember at the time that the film it did not get good reviews and right yeah, this film came out at a time that I was I was trying not to uh, see every movie because, you know, movies were expensive or, you know, relatively, and I didn't have much money. So this was a film I skipped, and this was not a film that you want to rent at Blockbuster. It just drifted away, and I never saw it. Just like you probably never saw this since the movie theater, right, Al? Right. So I did see it in the movie theater, and when Aaron Newman was on for Bad Boys 2, we just kind of mentioned that we saw it in passing, but the story is is that somewhere during this movie's three-hour-plus runtime, I was so mad that we had paid money to see this movie because, like you said, you know, we were 21 years old, just out of college, broke, and we had all paid good money to go see this movie at Aaron's suggestion because Aaron loved Michael Bay. And there were like six or seven of us. And my solution was something horrifically immature. I like sent a punch down the line, you know, like I lightly punched the guy next to me and said, hey, send that down to Aaron, you know, not like in a like a a full like smack kind of a way, just like, you know, a little like tap on the leg and Aaron was so mad he like stood up in the theater was like you have a problem you don't like this movie this movie's awesome and I was like it's really not though dude like I don't want to fight you but like it would be more interesting than watching this stupid movie so yeah that's my memory of Pearl Harbor haven't seen it since but it's the 20th anniversary so I watched it again and we're gonna talk about it now I've seen you when we're watching a film that you are disliking, and you are very vocal about it. You are definitely making it known what your opinions are. Um, Spider-Man. I saw Spider-Man with you. If I hate a movie, I tend to be a little vocal about it. And, uh, you know, look, I'm consistent. It's not like I just turned into an asshole podcaster. I've been like this for, you know, many decades. But let's get into the movie itself. It starts with these two young boys, and they are, like, on a a farm somewhere in, I don't know, do they say where? Indiana? Somewhere in, like, the middle of America. It's young Rafe and Danny, and they're best friends, and they pretend to fly, and then they get into the crop duster, and they actually accidentally take it in the air, and then Danny's dad starts beating up on Danny, and it's Rafe to the rescue. He saves his friend from his mean old drunk dad, but, you know, then the dad starts talking, and it seems like he has, like, PTSD from World War One, and he's like, what I saw, I hope no one ever sees the things I saw. Which, you know, pretty obvious foreshadowing there for what's going to happen to these characters. So now it's 1940, and the boys are now grown, and Rafe is played by Ben Affleck, and Danny is now uh, Josh Hartnett. So they're both uh, pilot. They're both ace pilots, and you know because there's a guy that tells you, uh, just as they take off, some guy goes... Ooh, those boys are some smooth aces. Yeah, there's not a lot of subtlety in this movie. Um, Alec Baldwin plays a lieutenant named Doolittle, who's actually a real person. But then we quickly get into the love story. And this woman, Evelyn, is telling the story to her friends about how she met this real dreamy guy named Rafe. And she is a nurse. And Rafe was doing the test, you know, like the medical pre-check or whatever, and he should have failed his eyesight test, not because he has bad eyesight, but because he's dyslexic. I assume they didn't have the word dyslexic back then. He keeps saying that he just gets confused with letters, but he begs her to pass him, and she does, and then he wants to talk to her more because she's pretty and he likes her, and so he goes to like get an inoculation, even though he already had the inoculation, and it's just really, really terrible dialogue where he says, I just, I really lick you. I mean, like you. Uh, guffaw, guffaw. 
but then he gets like this extra shot that he didn't need and he passes out and like slams his face into uh, like a medical tray. Then they go out on a date and he's got this big bandage on his face and then he's opening up some champagne and then the champagne pops in his nose and he's like, oh, it hurts so bad. And then he's like, you're so beautiful, it hurts. And she says, I think it's your nose that hurts. And he says, I think it's my heart. I mean, this is like dialogue from a Hallmark card. It's so bad. It is obvious to me. I don't know about you, but it's obvious to me that this film was pitched as Titanic, but set in the backstory of Pearl Harbor instead of the, you know, the great tragedy of the Titanic. Yes, that definitely seems like the case. It's Titanic meets Top Gun, kind of. Right. I mean, when something like 1997's Titanic comes along and makes more money than any film had ever made in history, you can't really do a Titanic 2, even though there was a Titanic 2 made for DVD, not affiliated with the actual film. But um, since you can't do a franchise on that, you basically try to replicate it. And it's obvious that this is the buildup to what is obviously coming, which is the attack on Pearl Harbor, which is going to be the climax of the film, presumably. And this is a love story, just like Jack and Rose on the Titanic. Right. I think the main difference is that Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet are much better actors. Also, I believe the dialogue was much better in Titanic, though, to be fair, I haven't seen that movie since, I don't think, 1998. We'll review that at some point. But I definitely hear what you're saying. I definitely think this was trying to ride the the wave of the Titanic that's probably a terrible analogy, uh, but you know what I mean. Like, they were trying to go for that kind of thing. And, you know, obviously, Rafe and Evelyn, they fall in love, but then Rafe goes to the British Air Force to help them out because at this point, America is not involved in World War II. Everyone kind of thinks that America will get involved, but as of right now, we are not. And so we are sending some pilots to England, apparently. I think that's true. And Rafe goes and, you know, while he's there, he kills a lot of Germans. Every time he like goes to shoot down a Nazi, he says, hammer down, which is like, I guess, supposed to be his catchphrase. Okay, but he ends up getting shot down. He goes down into the water and he is presumed dead. So Danny gets the news and he's the one that tells Evelyn they're grieving together. It's his best friend. And she was his girl. Right. And they have like text on screen that says three months later, basically to let you know that they've given it some time. They didn't just like hop into bed together right away. The best friend and the girlfriend. But it's inevitable. They end up together before they do, I mean, they have this scene where they sneak onto the airfield and he takes her in uh, this two-seater biplane. I think it's an awesome scene where they're just flying through, I guess it's Hawaii. I thought that scene is fantastic. I mean, it's really well done. I mean, you could see where the budget went in this film. So that was completely against the rules. You can't take like government uh, airplanes and gas and everything to fly your girl up. So they hide in this hangar and there's all these parachutes hanging from the ceiling it's not really explained but it, it's kind of like there's like curtains everywhere and one thing leads to another and uh you know what happens Al? they have sex they sure do and she did not have sex with rafe they probably were going to that night before he left but then he said no he wanted to have something to look forward to and he didn't think it would be right so he didn't but danny does and um they become a couple And at one point, Evelyn is in the bathroom. She's been in there a while. She finally comes out of the bathroom, and then she runs back into the bathroom holding her mouth. And if you're thinking, ah, I bet I know why she's nauseous, you're correct. She read the script for this movie. That's why she wants to throw up so bad. You know, I I kind of agree with you in in one way, because the moment I was aware that uh, she was, uh, you know, this nauseous, 
in a Hollywood way. I'm like, she's pregnant because I had already said one of these two guys is dying. And I'm not sure which one it is, but one is dying, probably saving the other one. I'm not really sure. You said this to your girlfriend while you were watching it. Yes, I said one of them's going to save the other one, but both of them are not surviving this. The second she did this, I go, okay, she's pregnant with Danny's son. So Danny, Josh Hardnett, he's dying. Ben Affleck is going to uh, be uh, the survivor, and he's going to raise this baby. Which, by the way, we didn't talk about this when we were talking about Justice League a few weeks back, but that was like the plan for the uh, extended Snyder Justice League trilogy was that Bruce Wayne, who was Ben Affleck, uh, was going to have a kid with Lois Lane and then Batman was going to die and Superman was going to raise Batman's kid. So it's it's kind of funny that like, you know, basically the same kind of story uh, was going to happen with Ben Affleck in a totally different movie. But yeah, I mean, you're right. Like the the way that this movie is setting that up is unbelievably obvious. Also, the way that they handle Rafe coming back was really, really stupid because Evelyn gets a telegram and the first words of the telegram are, I'm alive. It's supposed to be shocking, but it's not like she reads the telegram and then has to deal with all of those feelings and then prepares for him coming like he shows up while she's reading the telegram. So it's like either do the telegram or do that he shows up unannounced, but don't do both. It's really, really stupid. That is a very, very good point. And uh, I do like a lot of the little cuts of this film where they go back and forth between the events going on in Pearl Harbor or with uh, Danny and Rafe and Evelyn. And they also cut to what's going on in Japan as the Japanese fleet prepare their entire fleet to attack Pearl Harbor. And you also get cuts from the White House in Washington where uh, FDR is kind of getting word that there might be an attack. And you're kind of seeing these cuts throughout the film. Right. And I think it's supposed to add some historical context. It's not great. I mean, like, the whole thing about, like, why the Japanese want to attack Pearl Harbor is because America has cut off their fuel, which is not really why they did it. And it's a little bit, like, overly simplistic. And, you know, FDR is made out to be like this amazing inspirational hero, but it feels very separate from the love triangle, which is not good in terms of having one cohesive story. But on the other hand, it is good to get away from like the cheesy love dialogues from time to time. You also see um, there's a couple of Japanese spies that are just in Hawaii, like as tourists, and they're just taking pictures of the fleet in Pearl Harbor. Because, of course, you know, there's no internet. They probably have to uh, get this film developed and somehow smuggle it back to Japan somehow. This takes a while, and we see them put this all together. They do take time to show us how the Japanese did it. And I thought it was very interesting because I don't really know much about Pearl Harbor. I, I'm sorry to say, I, I, you know, of course I know about the attack. And I thought it was just uh, very interesting how they did this. And they finally say the way that they're going to sneak the attack and like, you know, put radio signals coming from everywhere. So they'll think it's all gibberish and they won't know which one is real. And someone says, sir, you are brilliant. And his reply was, a brilliant man would find a way not to go to war. I thought that's a good line. I don't know if it's an original line from this film. I, I, I like that line. I guess, fine. But this night that Rafe comes back is the night before the Pearl Harbor attack. Obviously, they don't know that. But Rafe is so happy to see Evelyn. But oops, awkward, uh, kind of started dating someone else. Who? And then Danny shows up. And then Danny and Rafe get into this big fight. They get drunk. They beat the crap out of each other. They're kind of like talking it out a little bit. They pass out. And then the next morning, the air raid sirens go off. And now we're about an hour and a half into this three-hour movie. And this next sequence is the attack on Pearl Harbor. And it lasts like a solid 40-plus minutes. This is the thing that people were talking about. This is probably why Michael Bay directed this movie, because he knows how to do explosions. And the whole time I was watching it, all I could think of was Michael Bay in a pitch meeting, just being like, okay, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be all of these Japanese planes, and they're going to go like, and then the boat's going to go, 
And then all these soldiers are going to go, ah! And then this other guy's going to go with a gun. He's going to I mean, it's basically 40 minutes of that. Um, you know, I, I'm guessing you didn't like this. You know, this is based on real reports, uh, apparently. The Japanese fleet flew so low that just random people would just see the planes fly over them. And there's a shot of, like, a Boy Scout troop or, like, a Little League team. They're just seeing an entire fleet of pilots flying towards Pearl Harbor. Even there's a shot of one of the Japanese guys telling the kids to, like, get down or something. Yeah, that's because the Japanese really were only targeting the military base. And later on, there's a shot of them bombing the hospital, which is not accurate. Uh, The Japanese didn't do that. They deliberately didn't do that. And so apparently Japanese people were kind of offended that they had that in this movie, that they would go out of their way to target a military hospital they were deliberately avoiding civilians. But the thing you're talking about of like all of the the kids playing baseball who see the plane and then there's the Boy Scouts who see the plane. It's a lot of like slow motion of people seeing the plane. It happens like six or seven times. They really draw it out of like these planes are flying low. People are seeing them. They are seeing them in slow motion. Then someone else sees them. They just do it like four or five too many times when the bombs start dropping someone says like oh what's that noise i think it's danny who says i think world war ii just started like oh god i thought at least when the explosion started then we'd get a break from the terrible fucking dialogue but no 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 there's still plenty of horrifically cheesy lines throughout the explosions and the bodies flying every which way You know, like I had said earlier, I don't know too much about the details. I don't know the historical accuracies of it, but I do know that the uh, the USS Arizona, like that was famously uh, bombed and that sunk. And like 1,100 people died in that sinking. And most of them were kids. I mean, they were like 17, 18, 19 years old, apparently, among most of the dead. They decimated the ground fleet. And these guys came out of nowhere. I mean, it was, uh, the way the film depicts it, a near-perfectly coordinated sneak attack. Yes, that is true. Like, it was meant to be a surprise attack, and the Japanese were very successful in the movie and in real life at surprising the people at Pearl Harbor. And I think that what Michael Bay was going for here was realism. Horrible depictions of the atrocities of war in general and this specific attack. But for me, I don't think it works because there are so many things that take you out of it. I mean, at some point on the podcast, when we want to thoroughly depress ourselves, we'll review Saving Private Ryan. That's a movie that shows like the horrors of war, but it does it respectfully. It's unsettling, but like realistic. This just feels like explosions for like the sake of shock value and just seeing like how much carnage you can fit on one screen at once and just having it go on and on and on and on and on. And The dialogue, yes, I'm making fun of it because I'm just being snarky Alan, but also it really does take you out of the scene. It destroys the realism. What do you mean? I'll give you an example. Like when these guys are like in the water, they're struggling to survive, like they're swimming with all of their might. And the guy says, the current's too strong. It's pulling me back. I'm sorry, no. If you're fighting for your life and you are devoting every single ounce of energy towards coordinating your arms and legs to swim that way, you're not going to stop and yell, the current's too strong. Who are you saying that to? You don't need to say that. You need to focus on surviving. Then the planes come and they start shooting at the guys in the water. And one of the soldiers says, they're shooting at us. Why would you fucking say that? Who are you saying that to? Just swim. Just avoid it. Like... It's stupid and it's unnecessary and that like really hurts like the realism of the scene. 
Uh, I did not get nearly as angry as you did. I thought most of this Pearl Harbor attack was pretty fascinating, actually. You did? I think that, you know, drowning is such a horrible way to die. I, I thought they really grab you, those shots of those those boys. And they actually have a shot of uh, the ship is slowly sinking and the air is getting less and less and less. I it was kind of in the back of my mind thinking... And they actually showed it. The guy, he took his last breath. Like, this is it. And he <gasps> and he held his breath and you know, he went under. And you presume he died a terrible death uh, you know, 30 to 90 seconds later. I just don't see, like, what it adds to the movie. It just reads to me as, like, showing carnage for the sake of showing carnage. And if you want to show gritty realism in a war movie, you can do that. But you really have to take it seriously and really do it right. And I do not think this movie does it. There's also like um, a ton of different effects that they use of like the haze and then the out of focus and the slow-mo. And like if you want to pick one of those to show like the disorienting nature of a battle, okay. But don't do like all of them. It just feels like he was going for every trick in the book. I mean, I thought it was chaos. You know, we had different opinions of this uh, scene. I found it uh, very gripping at this point. I actually said at one point to my girlfriend, I said, this movie just started getting really good. And you know, I actually really like these parts. And the actual plot here for the viewer is that uh, Danny and Rafe, they've woken up in the backseat of their convertible and they hear the bombing and they race to a battlefield and they get to the battlefield just as uh, the Japanese are attacking the airstrip. Right. So Rafe and Danny join the fight by going to this other airstrip that's a little ways away that the Japanese haven't hit yet. They're able to get in the air and they keep saying like the same military phrases, which also took me out of the scene where they keep saying like, there's four zeros on your six and zeros are the Japanese planes and on your six means behind you. And so if there's four zeros on your six, that means there are four planes behind you. Why did this anger you? Because they keep saying it over and over and over again. There's four zeros on your six. There's three zeros on your six. Oh, you got some zeros on your six. Like at one point, Michael Bay heard that and was like, oh, that sounds like a cool military thing, but also something that the audience can follow. So let's say it, I don't know, 20 times. Yeah, sure. They keep talking about get the 50 cal, the 50 cal. We need the 50 cal. That's the big gun, the 50 caliber gun. Like, it's repetitive and it's stupid, but I guess good for Danny and Rafe. They shoot a bunch of bad guys out of the sky. You're worried that maybe one of them won't make it? No, no. They both make it. They do okay. Well, one thing we didn't mention is we mentioned Michael Bay, but uh, one of the producers of this film, and there are a lot of producers in this film, but one of them is Jerry Bruckheimer. And he had produced, along with Don Simpson, uh, he had produced Top Gun. This is not a production team that doesn't know how to do dogfighting. You know, one thing I didn't like about Top Gun when we reviewed it was that I didn't really feel like there was anything at stake. Like, wait, was America shooting down Soviet airplanes? Like, I didn't get it. But here it's like, you know who you're rooting for in this scene. Basically, the Americans have been decimated and they're trying to give the audience a little bit of sense that uh, it wasn't a total loss, which, you know, Pearl Harbor was a, the biggest foreign attack until 9-11, or I think it's comparable to 9-11. I think the casualties in both were around 3,000. Forgive me for not knowing the exact number, but they're pretty close. 3,000 Americans died in each. Right. So, you know, the way we use 9-11 as this kind of like a unit of tragedy in terms of uh, you know, how many people died, like when people were saying during a pandemic, like there's a 9-11 every day of people dying. That was Pearl Harbor for 60 years. Um, there's scenes of uh, all these people in the hospital, a lot of people dying. There's a great triage scene. And you do learn this in medical school. I know you always ask me, do you learn this in medical school? But this is accurate. 
trauma triage is basically if there's a mass trauma event, you know, there's only limited resources that you'll be able to save people. So if you use your resources on people that you can't save no matter what, you might not be able to save people that you could have saved had you had the proper equipment. So you do triage people as, you know, minor wounds that we can get to later critical wounds that need attention right now, and then some kind of mark that this patient needs, maybe pain relief or something, just, you know, give them morphine or something like that. And they do something similar to that in this film. I don't know what the exact uh, codes that they're writing. Uh, probably like M for morphine, C for critical, F maybe on the guy that looked like he was dying for maybe futile or something. And uh, we do see at this scene that the other nurse, Betty, we'd seen, uh, it was proposed to, and it was a young, happy fiance. She's been killed in the attack. Because as you said, even though it may not be historically accurate, in this film, the Japanese fleet, after they're done with the naval fleet, they attack this hospital and just shoot their machine guns at the uh, fleeing people. Right. And Betty is a character that we know kind of because Red, who's another one of the pilots, has asked her to marry him. So it's supposed to be like, oh, no, one of our beloved characters. But we don't really know Betty. We've seen her on screen for five seconds. It's not particularly devastating they don't explain like what the codes are that she's writing on the forehead you know like you get it and yes the triaging is a real thing um i think the hospital scenes are a little bit more affecting than the battle scenes i'll I'll give you that as i said i'm really liking the film at this point and there's uh, a scene we have to talk about uh that's uh Cuba Gooding Jr., he plays a uh, soldier in this film. And because, of course, he's African-American, he complains earlier in the film that they don't let him do anything. He's like a cook, and all, or not even a cook. All he does is like shave potatoes with the other black soldiers. And then during the attack in Pearl Harbor, he grabs a gun. And apparently it's based on uh, a true story. So I thought that was a cool scene because, you know, shooting down airplanes... It's a similar shot from the original Star Wars when uh, you know Luke and Han are in the uh, you know they're trying to shoot the Tie Fighters. I thought that's a great scene. I thought that's pretty cool because it's believable that uh, these uh, fifty cal bullets could really just decimate the wing enough to make them crash. Yes, that's true. But like I was just saying with Betty. You don't know this character, really. Like, Cuba Gooding Jr. is a great actor, but he's got, like, 14 seconds of screen time before this. So when he does shoot this plane down, it's a triumphant moment because, you know, he got the bad guys, but it just doesn't pack the emotional punch that it really could if we had really gotten to know him and really understood his story and his struggle and gotten more than just, you know, two scenes with him before that. That's fair. That's fair. And then uh, pretty much the attack is over because we get a shot of uh, the Japanese uh, leader there. He has declined to send the third wave of the Japanese fleet to attack Pearl Harbor, which seems to be a controversial decision. But he decides we've done considerable damage to the Americans. And uh, he does say the phrase that even though there was a great victory at Pearl Harbor and he's being congratulated, he replies that, uh, I fear we have awakened a sleeping giant. Apparently, that line is lifted from another movie called Tora, 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 which is also about World War II. But where did that film get it from? I think they wrote it for that movie. You could call it an homage or you could say they just completely fucking ripped it off. Either way, it's a great line. I think it's a great line. Sure, totally. Yeah, take other better movies and rip them off. And then, yeah, that's that's a great way to make a movie. Absolutely. Just copy and paste from other movies. Why doesn't everybody do that? Although maybe they do. Like if he quotes Ezekiel, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just steal that from Pulp Fiction, you know, it might work. No. But uh, now we get to the aftermath. You see this shot of hundreds of bodies floating in the water and you know it's reminiscent of that scene in titanic where that night you see just like what looks like an endless sea of uh frozen dead bodies in the water but here you see them kind of mostly face down but it's it's pretty terrible and there's even a shot of uh this telegram that comes from washington and it says attack from japanese imminent and they're like uh thank you because you know it's an hour too late 
And right. uh, then we get uh, FDR addressing the nation because, of course, in, in a movie called Pearl Harbor, you need to have the famous FDR, you know, the date that will live in infamy. And we now know, it's kind of common knowledge that he had uh, polio or possibly another disease, actually. There's some suspicions it wasn't polio, but he was uh, wheelchair bound or used crutches. But the general public didn't really know this. So I thought it was a cool shot that Michael Bay included of them putting these braces on that were behind the podium to kind of prop him up. I thought that was cool. That, by the way, that is where the first DVD ends. I saw this movie on DVD. It's not on any of the streaming platforms. I I rented it from my local library because I refused to give Michael Bay a fucking penny. And because the movie's so long, it's stretched out over two DVDs. Right after FDR declares war, that's when you had to change the discs and go on to disc two. That's very interesting you say that because... You have to have that speech, and I'm kind of thinking, yes, the movie's kind of over here, right? Like, we're kind of going to kind of wrap it up. Titanic, once the Titanic sinks, you know, the tragedy and everyone dies, they kind of wrap up the movie pretty quickly. Right. But they have this whole extra thing. Whole extra act. It's an entire other act. Yeah, based around this secret mission to attack Tokyo. And this is actually true. There was this raid, it's called the Doolittle Raid, named after Alec Baldwin's character, who again was a real person. And the idea was that FDR was pissed and he wanted to strike at the heart of Japan, so they attacked Tokyo. So it is true, but it really rang false. Like, it didn't feel like this was part of the story because of what you just said. Like, you felt like the story needed to end. And then as you get into it, you're like, okay, I get it. This is just so that the American audience can go, rah, rah, the Americans are going to get some kind of victory in here after this horrible, horrible defeat. And so one of these guys will die so that the love triangle will have some resolution by the end of the movie. Like, it's all just, like, there as, like, This is why we're doing this, and it just made me want to roll my eyes even more than I already was. I had almost the exact same opinion. I thought that this was added because you needed a a victory at the end of this terrible, tragic uh, military defeat. It was a defeat, even though, yeah, Rafe gets to shoot down a couple zeros, and that's great. The three zeros that were on a six? (laughs) Exactly. Right. That was very exciting, like shooting down three zeros after they've already dropped, uh, you know, bombs or whatnot on the uh, Arizona. It doesn't really help anymore. Right. And when we first learn about this secret mission, it's just Danny and Rafe who are going because they're the heroes of Pearl Harbor. They were the only people who we saw do anything and really fight back, except for Cuba Gooding Jr. too, I guess. But then when they get on this secret mission, Red and Goose are there too. Goose, by the way, is played by Michael Shannon, uh, who I love. He was General Zod in Man of Steel and was fantastic on Boardwalk Empire. The fact that they named his character Goose is just like ripping off Top Gun because it really sounds like Goose. Uh, It's not, though. It's Goose with a Z, not with an S. It's totally different. Not really. Um, But, like, why are those guys there? They're not the best of the best. They're just there because, hey, we need to see some familiar faces, and, hey, Red needs to get some vengeance because the Japanese killed his fiance. It's really stupid that they're there. But before Danny and Rafe head out, they both talk to Evelyn, and Evelyn tells Rafe that she's pregnant with Danny's kid, but don't tell Danny. I don't want him to know, and I'm going to stay with Danny because that's the right thing to do, but I'll always love you. Okay, fine. Rafe gives Danny and Evelyn the chance to say goodbye. He's always been protective of his friend, even from the very beginning of the movie when they were little kids. But now he wants to be extra protective because he knows that Danny has a kid waiting for him. So it's really important that he survive. You know how that's going to go. Um, I wanted to ask you, while they are in this mission while they're like flying over Japan and bombing Tokyo. Did you see like green screen in the plane? Did that like catch your eye at all? No, not at all. 
There are a couple of shots where it looks like they forgot to fill in some green screen. And I couldn't quite tell if it was like a mistake or maybe it was supposed to be just like one panel of glass in the plane that is tinted green for some reason. It really looks like a mistake. And I will not give Michael Bay credit for basically anything. But if the only thing that guy cares about is special effects, you would think he wouldn't have allowed that to happen. So I don't know. Maybe it's not a mistake, but it definitely looked like a mistake on my TV. Yeah, I didn't notice it, but that that is pretty funny. They basically uh, succeed in their mission. They do bomb some targets in Tokyo. They strike back at the heart of Japan. But uh, as we find out, right after the planes took off from the aircraft carrier, which we didn't talk about earlier, this seems to be like the first mission ever to use an aircraft carrier, which kind of makes sense. Like, the idea of an aircraft carrier is is totally bonkers. And these guys actually had to use it. So that was a pretty cool scene. Wouldn't you at least say that was a cool scene, aircraft carrier scene? What about it's cool? Airplanes taking off from an aircraft carrier. It's just, it's cool. James, you do this all the time. I don't understand you. Yes, it's cool that airplanes can take off from an airplane carrier in real life. But just because you see it in a movie, like, so what? They're showing you something that exists. Like, cool, but not really. Yeah, but this one's different because we're watching people that had never seen it before. And we had seen earlier in the test runs, like, you need to take off in whatever it is, 300 feet or meters. I don't know how long... uh, aircraft carrier runway is but uh, like they weren't able to do it and they kind of did a little montage where they were slowly able to get to that uh, takeoff speed but I thought it was exciting I didn't I just thought it was killing time like I've been watching this movie for two plus hours I know how this is going to end I know that they're going to be able to take off from the aircraft carrier just get to it already come on I thought it was just dragging it out for no fucking reason It's all so predictable. The raid goes well enough. The Americans hit their targets, but they crash in China because China is an ally during World War II. But then there are Japanese in China. What are they doing there? I don't know. Not really explained. They're going to kill Rafe, but then Danny's plane swoops down at the last second, shoots the attacking Japanese, saves the day, but then they crash, and Rafe runs over to his friend. They're all taken prisoner, and it seems like maybe they would be taken to some prisoner of war camp or something, but then Rafe is like, I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to save everybody. He grabs a gun. He shoots a couple of the Japanese soldiers, and they are about to fire on Rafe, and then Danny, in his last heroic act, steps in front of the bullets, saves Rafe, but is mortally wounded in the process. He has the Hollywood death scene. He says the most cliche thing anyone can say in a movie as they're dying. I'm so cold. I don't know if people really say that, but I feel like in any movie where someone gets shot, that's the thing that they say. Rafe tells him that he's going to be a father, and Danny says, no, you are, before dying, which is supposed to be like a nice thing of like, no, I want you to raise my kid. Also, though, kind of a dick move, you know, just like saddling your best friend to be like, oh, um, how about you take care of that lifelong responsibility? I'm just going to peace out later. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is a big responsibility, but they're BFFs. You know what that second F stands for? Forever. Uh-huh. I mean, as a father, I understand what a big responsibility that is. Yeah, so Rafe, uh, he gets to the platoon of Chinese soldiers, and they're rescued. And we do see the epilogue. You know, America goes into World War II, and we, of course, know the ending of that. Well, we find out what happens to America in World War II through voiceover from Evelyn. There'd been no voiceover in the whole movie, but at the very end, let's just have Evelyn give the audience voiceover for absolutely no fucking reason whatsoever. Sure, why not? And after she explains that America won World War II, just, you know, a little history lesson for the audience, uh, we see that Rafe is in Indiana or wherever he was at the beginning of the movie, and he's with Evelyn and their son, who's named Danny, after his biological father, and Rafe takes him for a spin in the plane, and the end. Finally, after three fucking hours, the movie is over. (laughs) So, Al, I'm so curious. What did you think? Does 2001's Pearl Harbor stand the test of time? 
Hell fucking no. James, what do you think? <laughs> oh my god. No, I mean, look, it's really fucking bad. It's not about Pearl Harbor. It's like about this love triangle and then they jam in this 40-minute scene of explosions. It's awful. It's not respectful to the tragedy that was the attack on Pearl Harbor at all. It's a shitty movie. There's a great quote from Roger Ebert's review where he says, Pearl Harbor is a two-hour movie squeezed into three hours, which I just love. That's like so fucking great. Um, If you want to make a realistic war movie about the terrible attack on Pearl Harbor, sure, that can be done. Don't hand that movie to Michael Bay. Just fucking don't. Like, he's going to fuck it up. You want to give it to Spielberg? Sure. I believe there is a good movie to be told about the horrific events of December 7th, 1941. But this ain't it. This is a garbage movie. It's another shitty Michael Bay movie. Um, I can't blame you, James, for picking this movie. You know, like, I had it on the list because it was the 20th anniversary. Honestly, though, looking at Michael Bay's IMDb... Can we just be done with Michael Bay? Like, please? Like, the only other movie that would be eligible is The Island. I don't want to fucking watch that. I don't want to wait a couple years when there's another Transformers movie and we do the first Transformers movie. Like, can we just be done with this fucking guy? He sucks. He makes terrible movies. If you have the itch for that, just go to YouTube and type in Explosion Compilation. You'll be happier. Michael Bay sucks. This movie sucks. It's garbage and... It's three hours of my life I'm never going to get back, and I never want to watch another Michael Bay movie ever again. Literally. I'm not saying that as a figure of speech. I literally mean that. Do you love this movie, James? Do you think it stands a test of time? Did you really like the part where it went... Was that your favorite? Or did you like the part where it said... Well, I'm going to say a couple things. First, there's one Michael Bay film that intrigues me. I've never seen it before, but it's a film called Pain and Gain, which I've heard is actually quite good. So maybe one day we'll review that. It will be eligible for our podcast in 2028. Maybe you'll have calmed down by then. Nope. I'm only (laughs) going to get more mad by then. I'm going to be really fucking grizzled by then. I think there are some great things all the way to some very bad things in this film. And I also said earlier that this film is trying to do the Titanic formula. I haven't seen Titanic in years, but I remember I was not bored in any way during the first two hours to Titanic's last third hour of, you know, action. And this film is basically two films. It's a period romantic drama that takes place in 1940 And then it's a World War II film uh, for the last hour and a half. And it's almost exactly halfway through. I noticed in an hour and 31 minutes. That is when I actually noticed that this film started getting really interesting. And I have to say, I really enjoyed the second half of this film. I had a completely different take on it than you. I thought that the, uh, the the attacks were great. I thought the special attacks were fantastic. It was, you know, tragic to see, but very cool. It's not like a Discovery Channel, you know, documentary that would have, uh, you know, footage and interviews with people. This is giving you, you know, with Hollywood magic and being able to see it. So I thought that that second half, most of the second half, was fantastic. Um, I didn't really care for that final battle. I thought it could have been very easy for Josh Hartnett character if they want to kill him for for a reason like uh have him die in the pearl harbor attack saving raf or something i thought it was just a weird third act the problem with this film is that i found that first half of the film uh which is the romantic period drama i found it to be uninteresting i agree with you that the dialogue wasn't good i was not as angry at it that you seem to be i just found it to be a boring film i just didn't really buy why they were in love i love kate beckinsale josh hartnett i think he's fine in this film ben affleck is ben affleck josh hartnett i didn't really know his films as much but he was someone that's my age and he is he's all right basically he's like a few you know maybe like 10 months older than us or something but he's basically our age ben affleck on the other hand is someone that i always knew as someone 
older than me. Like when we were teenagers, he was in movies like Chasing Amy and like, you know, these are like 20 something adult films. So to me, I was like, no, these guys are not the same age because they're the same age as kids. And now Rafe is now like 10 years older than him. (laughs) I didn't love that chemistry just for that reason. It took me out of it a little bit. That's a good point. Also, none of them are really great actors. You know what? Kate Beckinsale's fine, but Josh Hartnett and Ben Affleck are not good in this movie. Ben Affleck is an Oscar winner, but he's never won an Oscar for acting. He's won it for Best Picture for Argo and writing for Goodwill Hunting, but he's never won an Oscar for acting. He can be a better actor than he is in this movie, but this movie is not his best work by a long shot. I mean, this is not an Argo level uh, acting Ben Affleck. I'll give you that. But I thought Josh Harden was fine. I think Kate Beckinsale is a great actress. And I like Alec Baldwin. Like, he's fun in, in films. And it's a little hammy, the role he plays. But uh, if you ended this film at the end of Pearl Harbor, uh, the attack, I would think this is a great film. You know, started 10 minutes early, like introduce me to a couple guys. But like... I just didn't care about the first part of the film. And then I also really didn't like the ending of this love triangle. Like, oh, my best friend's dead. Not I'm going to raise him for you, my best friend. It's like, now I will be with her because he puts his arm around her. It's presumed that they're together now. Right. One quick question. You're saying that you like the second half, but you don't like the very end and you don't like the final raid. And so you really don't like half of the movie. You really only like the attack on Pearl Harbor, like that 40 minutes. It's not half. I mean, like, I'm sorry to nitpick on math, but like, it's a three hour movie. You're saying you only like that 40 minute section of the attack. Is that right? I I absolutely love the attack on Pearl Harbor. I liked a lot of parts of this film. I thought the Josh Hartnett, uh, Kate Beckinsale flight scene was beautifully done. I think all the flying scenes are really fun. He really captures that, like, flying is a new thing to these people, and it's pretty fucking cool. It's almost like a Superman Lois Lane kind of vibe to it, and I thought that was actually pretty effective. I thought that was cool. The final battle, the thing is, I like it aesthetically. It's a cool scene. I just thought it didn't fit in the film the movie already ended like why are you randomly giving us another battle just to kill this guy off and give us a rah-rah victory like we know we win if i could recommend this film to someone i would say start it at like an hour 20 and yeah you won't really have context and maybe you won't hate the ending but i thought that the first hour and a half was just kind of useless except for you know a couple nice scenes the japanese scenes the fdr scenes i thought a lot of it was fine just the backstory that they picked was completely uninteresting to me. I felt so much more for the deaths of these nameless soldiers than I did for Danny. I just didn't care about him. And, you know, for that reason, I have to say that this movie, Pearl Harbor, does not stand the test of time. But watch the second half for a really, really action-packed film, which uh, which was kind of cool. But as a whole, no, three hours. This film did not become a film to watch. Yeah, I mean, you're right about that. I mean, you're wrong that it has any redeeming qualities whatsoever. But obviously, I expected you to to say something nice about it. I have a lot of nice things to say about this film. You remember the movie Team America colon World Police, right? Oh, yes, I do, Al. And we will be reviewing that at some point. We will. But there is a point in that movie, which came out in 2004, so three years after Pearl Harbor, where one of the characters sings about how much he misses his girlfriend and how much he hates Pearl Harbor. Listen to a clip from that song. It's called End of an Act. Need you like Ben Affleck needs acting school. He was terrible in that film. I need you like Cuba Gooding needed a bigger part. He's way better than Ben Affleck now. All I can think about is your smile and that shitty movie too. I love that song. It is so funny. And I'd never seen Pearl Harbor. I just kind of knew the zeitgeist about it. So I always found this song hysterical. It's very, very funny and completely accurate. Everything he says about the movie is right. Like, Cuba Gooding Jr. is great. They should have given him a bigger part. That's true. I mean, the song ends with, why does Michael Bay get to keep on making movies? That is the motherfucking question. 
That's well, the question. we know why, because movies make money. But, you know, you're bringing it up an interesting point, because this film, they needed a backstory to wrap this around. Kubrick Jr., it almost seems so obvious. It's like, he's a good actor, and obviously it's going to be some terrible struggle to uh, even advance at all in the army as a black man in the 1940s. And you could tell his story of how he got there, and then he takes down a zero in the end. There's your victory. It almost seems obvious, but... uh, they're trying to do their Titanic, like Josh Hartnett. They're trying to be their Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, I feel like you could compare this movie to Hot Garbage, but I almost feel like that would be insulting to Hot Garbage. Like, what did Hot Garbage ever do to you? You know, that's not fair. Al, will you at least answer me one thing? Sure. Is the second half of this film better than the first half? And like, is it a better, in your language, is it a better piece of Hot Garbage than the first half? I don't see the point in comparing them. Like, it's ah, all terrible. It's a completely different film. Yeah, sure. It's a completely different film. So in the first film, there's really shitty dialogue in a love story. Okay. Then in the second part of the movie, there's really shitty dialogue with big explosions. Like, uh, that's not good. And I get it that you think I'm being overly critical of the dialogue. But no, I'm not actually. Like, if you have a cheesy action movie with cheesy action one-liners, like, fine. Like, yes, I'm still going to be me and make fun of those terrible lines because, you know, they're terrible. But if you have them in any other Michael Bay movie, at least they're at home in those movies. This is supposed to be a gritty, realistic war drama about one of the greatest tragedies in our country's history. So you can't have guys being like, oh, no, they're shooting at us. Uh-oh, bullets equals bad. I don't like it. Like, no, it doesn't work. In Saving Private Ryan, I don't remember every detail about that movie, but I'm pretty sure that Tom Hanks at no point in that movie goes, now that's what I call Storm and Normandy. (laughs) You can't have terrible dialogue like that. It completely shatters the illusion of realism. It doesn't work. You could even make the argument that the second half of this movie is actually worse. So no, I am not impressed by it at all. If you are, good for you, James. That's okay. You're allowed to like... (laughs) terrible things so i i I don't know what to tell you i have a higher standards but that's going to do it for us this week come back next week when we talk about three kings that's a george clooney movie right i've never seen that one yeah it's uh george clooney uh mark Wahlberg, and ice cube directed by a gentleman named david o russell as long as it's directed by someone who's not named michael bay i'm a very happy person Yes, let's watch Three Kings. So as always, we want to hear your thoughts. Talk to us. We are at Tested Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We love hearing from you. Go to our website, TestedTimePod.com. You can find all of our back episodes. You can find our merch store. Get yourself some Test of Time merch. Maybe you still need a face mask, even if you're fully vaccinated. You can get one of those, or you just want a new t-shirt for the summertime. Get yourself a Test of Time t-shirt, why don't you? You'll look spiffy. Spiffy. That doesn't stand the test of time, but whatever. We'll see you next time, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.